Welcome to Midday Magazine for December 9th. I'm Jordan Lewis. Petersburg Early Childhood Education Task Force is seeking borough assembly approval to fund a program supporting continuing education for child care workers. The program would be an adaptation of the Juno Hearts program. It's meant to help address the childhood access crisis in Petersburg by reducing staff turnover. KFSK's Rachel Cassandra has more. Petersburg is in the midst of a child care access crisis. According to a recent needs survey, 44% of caregivers don't work because of a lack of child care. The borough assembly appointed an early childhood education task force to help figure out how to approach the issue on a borough level. Chelsea Tremblay heads that task force. She gave an update to the borough assembly at its December 5th meeting. Joining me is Katie Holmland. We just have a quick update for you. Homeland's on the task force and runs Kinderskog, a local child care center. Tremblay said the task force has been looking into the Juno Hearts program. They recently met with Brian Holst, who heads Juno's Economic Development Council. He shared the methodology behind the program, the positive effect it's had on staff turnover in Juno, and other lessons that they've seen trying to tackle this problem in their community. His presentation helped answer some questions a member of the task force had, and a few days later, we unanimously voted to approve the program. The proposed program would be similar to Juno's. It pays child care workers between two and 5000 a year for continuing education in the field. In a later interview with KFSK, Tremblay said sometimes continuing education is already required for maintaining certifications. We all do better with more training, and so continuing people to stay curious and stay invested in the field is really the goal, as well as demonstrating a gratitude for the kind of work that they're doing. It's such an underpaid position for the kind of work that they're doing, which is basically helping raise humans for our community. Assembly member Donna Marsh voiced concerns about the program at the meeting. She asked what would happen after the initial funding ran out, which could be in one or two years. It was to the tune of $40,000 a year that this would cost. Um, when the ARPA funds run out, when these things run out, I, I wonder what plan B is. And The task force is requesting up to $40,000 in funding through the borough's ARPA grant. That's federal funding for COVID relief. Tremblay says the task force doesn't know yet where they would get funding for future years. But she said starting the program to see if it works would be a huge step in the process. In order to pursue further funding, sometimes you need the program to already be going so you can have a demonstrated impact of what the program's doing. And so collecting that data will be absolutely a priority for us. In a later interview, Marsh said she doesn't want to add costs that she thinks Petersburg residents will ultimately shoulder. Bottom line, whether it's grant funded or put it putting it as a budget item on either the borough or the hospital, uh, it increases costs. The hospital has volunteered to take care of the paperwork for the program without charging the borough. But Marsh doesn't think that labor would actually be free. If you give the hospital yet another thing to pay for, um, I think the costs are still going to be passed down to the consumer. The presentation by Holst to the task force did address the economics of investing in early childhood education. Holst said research shows a 16% inflation-adjusted return on investment into early childhood development programs. And according to research, the earlier the investment in children, the greater return. 
Prenatal programs have the greatest dollar return, followed by programs for ages 0 to 3. Marsh is also concerned about the role of government in the plan. That's in line with how she campaigned when running for the borough assembly this year. She said she supported private enterprise and keeping government small. I struggle with government taking over child care. To me, um, that is best left to private industry. Homeland responded to Marsh's concerns at the assembly meeting. I will say, too, it's not the government trying to take over child care. This is a small way to be supporting our child care workforce right now so that hopefully we can build a stronger um, child care network here locally. Tremblay is not in the field of child care herself. She says it's important to trust the experts for direction. We have well over a century's worth professional child care and youth programming experience on the task force. At the end of the day, again, trusting experts to know what will work for them and then supporting them in pursuing that wherever we can um, is kind of the role of being a representative democracy. Marsh says she ran an in-home child care center for a few years when her kids were young. She says she thinks it could be great to encourage new private care centers. I like the incentivizing uh, business owners to, you know, child care providers to have incentives on less or maybe subsidized cost of getting going, whether it's inspections or permitting, things like that. Tremblay says that if this program is adopted, the task force could easily get immediate feedback. The task force has three people on it who head child care centers in Petersburg and one person, Becky Turland, who would be on the paperwork side of things at the hospital. So it's pretty dreamy to be able to have that kind of, we have people on the task force who themselves will qualify, who then get to make sure that their employees understand how the process works. And then if it ends up being too complicated or messy or whatever, then they can bring it back and say, hey, we need this to actually be accessible to people. And so that feedback loop is there. Tremblay says that adopting a continuing education program is just one piece of what the task force hopes to do. It doesn't solve every single problem because this is a issue in our community that has a lot of facets, but it's something that could help with one aspect of the problem. This proposal is the first ask for funds by the Early Childhood Education Task Force. They've been meeting for about six months. If implemented, the program could start as soon as January with first payments going out around June. In Petersburg, I'm Rachel Cassandra. The Assembly will consider awarding funding for the proposed program at their next meeting, which is on the evening of December 19th. The video by Brian Holtz discussing the Juno Hearts program is available on the borough's website at petersburgak.gov. It's part of the December 5th Assembly meeting packet. This weekend, the Mitkoff Dance Troupe will perform their new show, Lost in a Dream. The show is themed around dreams and nightmares and will feature a song selected by each choreographer. This show will be the troupe's first non-limited show, seating, sh- seating show since the pandemic. Their last two shows in spring and last fall had 50% capacity. There are over 100 kids participating in the dance recital with ages ranging from four years old to high school seniors. KFSK talked with some of the younger kids about what songs they will be dancing to. Now, can you tell me your name? I'm Finn. Okay, Finn, and what song are you dancing to? Here comes the sun. Well, thank you for that. And what's your name? Ren. All right, Ren, and what are you dancing to? 
Here Comes the Sun. Is that a fun song for you? Yeah. The show will also feature an adult hip-hop dance group. Tickets for the event for, are for sale at Lee's Clothing. The show will be performed on Saturday at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday at 2.30 p.m. in the Wright Auditorium. Anthony Michael Migliaccio was called to court Tuesday on December 6th after the state formally charged him with two counts of murder and one count of manslaughter for the killing of Faith Rogers. His lawyer, Anna Ambrose, entered a not guilty plea. He's expected back in court on December 28th if he and his lawyer decide then that they are ready for trial. A jury trial will be scheduled for early February. But District Attorney Jeselyn Gilliam acknowledged that it could be a while before the case goes to trial. She said other cases like this have taken years. And there are a lot of people in custody awaiting trial due to the backlog of cases from the pandemic. The two homicides that have gone to trial this year in Juneau were both 2019 cases. Um, so it gives you an idea as far as kind of what we're dealing with with the backlog. Rogers, a substance abuse counselor in Juneau, was found dead on September at the Kaktaguu Hinde or Brotherhood Bridge Trail. Migliaccio was arrested in connection with her killing on Thanksgiving, but has been in custody since late September on an unrelated case. He's being held in Lemon Creek Correctional Center on a $500,000 bond. Sitka author John Straley has published a new novel. The story weaves a little-known strand of 1960s pop culture into the fabric of life in a remote southeast Alaska fishing town. KCW's Robert Woolsey recently spoke with Straley about the book and what's next for one of Alaska's most prolific fiction writers. The novel is called Blown by the Same Wind, and like all of John Straley's books, there is more to the title than meets the eye. Writing mysteries and detective fiction is just Straley's day job. By night, Alaska's former writer laureate is a poet and a student of literature and history. During his decades working as an investigator for the Alaska Public Defender Agency, Straley says he kept a quote from the monk Thomas Merton on the cover of all his notebooks. And I wrote this quote down, and it was, uh, I am blown by the same wind that moves all of these people down the street like dead leaves and bits of paper in all directions. Knowing that he carried Thomas Merton with him as he explored the criminal underbelly of southeast Alaska, it's a little surprising that it's only in Straley's 12th and latest novel that Merton makes an appearance. I asked Straley to tell me the story of the story, which begins shortly after Merton, a Cistercian monk living at a monastery in Kentucky, had published a best-selling book called The Seven-Story Mountain making him something of a superstar in the world of spirituality. Dozens and dozens of tourists would come to want to sit at the feet of Thomas Merton. The abbot suggested that he go someplace more remote and to uh, pray and meditate and serve a small community. And they talked about coming to Alaska. In 1968, Merton actually did come to Alaska. And he wrote some letters indicating that after his trip was over, he was going to come back and live in Alaska, and uh, in southeastern Alaska, although he was nervous about bears. Anyway, he after he was in Alaska, he went to California and then to Asia, uh, and where he traveled, he met with the Dalai Lama. He was also of interest to the FBI and the CIA because he was uh, not in support of the war in Vietnam. And uh, he died in Bangkok. His brothers found him under a electric lamp, which they thought must have 
killed him. That Merton actually came to Alaska and may have moved here had he not died suspiciously was all Straley needed to weave him into the fictional world of blown by the same wind. It's an interesting story, full of conspiratorial overtones. And so I thought, that's just perfect for me. So I thought up every conspiratorial frame of mind that I could from 1968, researched all the different kinds of things, and have Thomas Merton come to my little fictional town of coal storage and get involved in a big messy crime. Blown by the Same Wind is Straley's fourth novel set in the fictional southeast Alaskan town of Cold Storage. He's written eight other novels in a different series featuring his 'er ne'er-do-well detective Cecil Younger. His plan is to write a novel for each series in alternate years. Twelve novels so far, some poetry collections, an anthology, and a biography make John Straley one of Alaska's most prolific writers. But there is a small problem. He doesn't live in Alaska anymore. Earlier this fall, Straley and his wife, the noted humpback whale biologist Jan Straley, moved to Carmel, California. Straley is trying to make the adjustment. I love the climate there. It's good for my health. It's good for my wife's health. I love the food down there, the fresh vegetables, but I miss the people here. Straley has been knocking around some of the roughest corners of Alaska for about four decades He's in Steinbeck country now, and he's already noticed that the preponderance of residents appear thin, rich, and healthy. But there are plenty of thin and healthy people in Alaska. Straley is having to recalibrate his ideas about rich. Brad Pitt has a $42 million home in Carmel, California now, with like 62 or something fireplaces. He hired a guy just to work on his fireplaces. Wow. That's where I'm rolling now. That's Uh the kind of crowd I'm in. Does Brad Pitt have uh, a library? He should. I haven't driven up to the gates with the guard dogs and the men in black suits and sniper rifles to try to drop a book off, but you never know. Straley feels obligated to write another novel about Detective Cecil Younger since the last title in the series, So Far and Good, saw our hero locked up in the Lemon Creek Correctional Center. I've just got to get poor Cecil out of jail, Straley says. Next comes a biography of his wife, Jan, and only then might he turn his attention and his pen to Northern California. There is literally no place John Straley can't work. Everybody has failings and tries to cover them up and uh, gets in trouble. Everybody gets in trouble. And so, and I have to say, there's some beautiful country around Big Sur and some crazy people down around there and near where I live. So... Every place is worthy of a writing about. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. For KFSK, I'm Jordan Lewis.